0: Hey, what is up everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man who just got his first fake ID and can't wait to order off the kids' menu. It's
1: Dale. <laughs> hey, hey, what's going on, brother? Let's go get us a Happy Meal and some nuggets and fries.
0: You know, I don't know if it's better to get the kids' meal or get the AARP card and get the senior discount. Same difference. You think it is? <laughs> I much. think it is, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah i'm close to both i
0: guess you get right there you either you're close to a diaper either way there you
1: go
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll leave it at that all right <laughs> all right dale what you got for us? you got any shout outs for us this week
1: oh i got a few man on a little more serious note we want to give a shout out to jesse and trey i know they're going through a little rough patch here with their losing their dog shelby and uh we want to Thank them and then just say uh we're thinking about you guys and sorry you lost your your bestie there and oh man i hate it for you because I knew never, it never it's, good to lose
0: a fur baby
1: man no, it is not and no so, it's tough so we're thinking about you guys
0: yeah that's that's
1: sad stuff all
0: right anything else you got for us this week is that it
1: i think that's it man that's all the house cleaning i got unless anybody wants to give us a five-star review and a and uh, just a Facebook review. Shout out to old Susie there for giving us a face, Facebook review. And appreciate you uh, listening. Yeah, guys, listen. If you, whatever
0: platform you listen to us on, whether it's iTunes or whatever, if it allows you to give a review and a five-star rating, please do it. Because it really does help the Crack House Chronicles move on up in the status and gets us more recognition out
1: there. So please Take a moment and just click that five-star button. Even if it's just a Facebook recommendation, that really helps, too. You know, go on and like our Facebook page and our Instagram page and follow us along. And tell everybody about us. Everybody. All right, Dale.
0: We're going to get into this case this week. And we have done, over the last few weeks, we've done some serial killers. We've done some missing persons and disappearances. But we're going to switch gears a little bit this week and we've got a story man that's pretty crazy
1: yes it is yeah something you've been wanting to do for a while so i, I have think been, it's time to dig in
0: i have been intrigued by this story for quite a while and and it, we brought it up you know we've got a list of things we want to cover and it just seemed the right time to do it so this is sort of on her birthday because the woman we're going to talk about was born on february the 19th 1946 Right, and her name is Karen Gay Silkwood, and she was born, like we said, on February the nineteenth, nineteen forty six, in Longview, Texas. She was born to parents, Merle and William Silkwood, and she was raised in Netherland, uh, Texas. I think that's how you say it. Netherland.
1: That's what it looks like or, to me, Netherland. Yeah,
0: Netherland, Texas.
1: Easy for you to say.
0: Yeah. She had two sisters, Linda and Rosemary. She attended Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, and in 1965, she married a William Meadows, who was a pipeline worker, and together they had three children. Now, getting back to Karen a little bit in her high school years, Dale, she excelled in science and chemistry. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, most of the females back then would take home ec and different
1: things like that. Right. But yeah, she was the only, only uh, female in her chemistry class, I think. Okay. And uh, she did very well uh, scoring a full scholarship to go to uh, college on that. Yeah. But she kind of gave all that up to run off and marry this guy.
0: Yeah. They actually left on a motorcycle, didn't they? Yep, yeah. Left town.
1: And her, her mom and pop wasn't too happy about it. No, that, they weren't, weren't happy with that at all. You have that, I guess.
0: But shortly after into their marriage, they had three children, and – they had some troubles. Yep. They had troubles in their early marriage, some bankruptcy, and her husband was having an extramarital affair, and it was just a bad situation for yeah, Karen. Yeah, it was
1: really bad. Yeah, basically William liked to blow all his money on his bikes and everything he was doing, and then he was running around on her. So she was just she was just not in a very good place at all.
0: And he wasn't giving her much of a chance either. She wanted to file for divorce, but the only way he would sign is if she signed over the custody of the children to yeah, him full
1: custody yeah yeah he wanted
0: that and that was she
1: wasn't having none of that no so no. she just, she hung around for a couple of years trying to make it work and finally she had just had enough guess. Yeah. just, just seen it wasn't healthy for anyone yeah so she went ahead and she just uh had her kids put them to bed one night and told her older kids to watch the younger kids she was going to run to the store and to get the pack of cigarettes and Never came back.
0: Yep. When when she left, her children were five years, three years, and eighteen months old. Mm. Yeah. So she just left. She went to Oklahoma, and she was she got a job working at the Cimarron Plutonium Plant, which was operated by Kerr McGee, and this was near Crescent, Oklahoma. And she, like I said, she was making four dollars an hour. Big money. You know, I guess that was pretty good money back then. All right, well, let's get Dave, let's give a little bit of background on Kerr-McGee. It is a company that was founded in 1929 by Anderson and Kerr Drilling Company by Oklahoma business politician Robert S. Kerr. And he was born in 1896 and died in 1963. He joined this with James L. Anderson and when Dean McGee, who was a former chief geologist for Phillips Petroleum, he joined the firm in 1946, Dale, and he changed the name to Kerr-McGee Oil Industries Incorporated. And the company initially focused mostly on offshore drilling exploration and production. And they were actually one of the first companies to use drill ships in the Gulf of Mexico.
1: Yeah, very ahead of the time.
0: Oh yeah, they were very innovative. And later, they were one of the first companies to use a spar-type platform in the Gulf. Hmm. So that that was a big... Big deal. On June 23rd, 2006, Anadarko Petroleum, which is a company based in Woodlands, Texas, they purchased Kerr-McGee in an all-cash transaction deal, totaling $16.5 billion. Not million, but billion, plus the assumption of a $2.6 billion
1: debt. So we're looking at almost $19 billion dollars. In cash, cash money. Was, they had dump trucks coming. Oh, in this was,
0: <laughs> this company was a monster. Yep. And the Kerr-McGee shareholders approved the offer on August the tenth, two thousand six, and Kerr-McGee ceased to exist as an independent entity. And all that this time.
1: would be well after what happens in the story, right? Yep.
0: But it's just a little background on the company of right. Kerr-McGee. Now, the founder Dale. Let's talk about him just a little bit.
1: Well, he was a shady guy, wasn't he?
0: Yeah. Robert Samuel Kerr, he was the founder of Kerr McGee. Right. And he was an American businessman and politician from Oklahoma. And he was born in a log cabin in Pontotoc County, and which is, I guess it says that it was an Indian territory right. in Oklahoma. And he was the son of Samuel William Samuel Kerr, who was a farmer and a clerk and a politician, and Edna Wright. He had a meek... Upbringing. Upbringing, yes. There you go. Yeah, born in a log cabin, you know, and just not much. They didn't have much.
1: Right, and there wasn't really a whole lot to talk about in his early years, even when the stuff he did, and then he got married. And then his wife, who was giving birth to twins, died during childbirth, and so did both the kids. So that kind of spin him into a spiral, you know. It don't, it doesn't get much lower than that, you know. You're losing your whole family at one time, there. Yeah, that's pretty much in <clears> tragic <throat> accident,
0: hitting rock bottom right there.
1: Right. Now
0: Kerr's growing wealth and business ties made him a power in state Democratic politics.
1: Right, because he had married after after that happened. He married Grace Marine, who was the youngest daughter of a wealthy Tulsa family. Tulsa, I'm sorry, family. You know, so he married into money, and then. After this they they lent him the money to buy into the oil and petroleum business. That kick
0: started his wealth right there. Right, yeah. Yeah, and he was gonna be a he was gonna have a powerhouse. Uh, he was elected as a Democratic national committeeman for Oklahoma. And two years later he ran for the Democratic nomination for governor, campaigning as a supporter for both the New Deal and US for the role in World War II. Right. So he was moving on up. Yep. And also he served a four year term as governor, served as a turning point for Oklahoma's politics and economy. For the first time in the state's history, Dale, executive legislative relations remained cordial, largely largely due to Kerr's patient leadership. Right. So he was he sounded like he was a had a lot going on with you know being governor and is pretty popular. Yes. In nineteen forty four he was chosen to deliver the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. He also p- played a backroom role in the selection of Harry S. Truman as vice president. Yep. So that's you know some interesting information there about this.
1: Yeah, he's rubbing elbows with some some high uh, high class people. Yep. He he knew what he's doing.
0: Yep. And Kerr was among twelve nominated at the nineteen forty four Democratic National Convention to serve as Roosevelt's running mate in the presidential
1: election that year. Yeah. So he was close to being vice president himself. Oh yeah. He
0: was. Yeah. He could have been. Knocking the door of the Mm presidency at one time. All right. And like we said, you know, he was into politics and all this stuff and also founded the Kerr-McGee Corporation. Right. He died on January the 1st, 1963. All right, Dale. Let's get back to a little bit about Karen Silkwood, the main topic of our
1: our story today.
0: Yes. All right. Like we said, Karen got a job at the Cimarron Plutonium Plant, which was operated by Kerr-McGee near Crescent, Oklahoma. And Dale, her duties included... Polishing fuel rods packed with radioactive plutonium pellets.
1: Dangerous stuff.
0: Yeah, but at the time they didn't
1: know it was that dangerous. Well, I think they knew maybe she didn't.
0: And while at the plant, she joined the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, which was also acronymed the OCAW, who staged a strike at the Cimarron plant not long after she began working there.
1: So she hadn't been there long. And they went on strike. Right. After the strike she was elected to the union's bargaining committee. And she was the first woman to achieve that position at the Car McGee plant.
0: And she was pretty outspoken. I mean she even her parents said that she was She was
1: a born activist. Yeah, she, she
0: liked yeah. to talk and she expressed her opinion yep. no matter what it was. She she wanted people to let her opinion known. Right. All right. Now she had a little bit of power, so Yeah. When the strike failed, many of the workers severed ties with the union, Dale, but not Karen Silkwood. She was a member of a bargaining committee, the first woman to hold the position in the union's history, like you said. Right. And charged with investigating health and safety issues at the plant. So this was a big deal for her. Yeah. And this is what she was trained to do. That's what she went to college for, and, and she was loving it. Yep. She had that chemistry degree. and it's what and,
1: she always wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Now, the OCAW union said that Kerr McGee Plant – had manufactured faulty fuel rods, falsified product inspection records, and risked employee safety. Mm. They also threatened litigation. In the summer of 1974, Karen Silkwood testified at the Atomic Energy Commission about having been contaminated, alleging that safety standards had slipped because of production speed-up.
1: Right, and she went and told them that a bunch of stuff was going on like it had uh, contaminations and spills and stuff, and still them getting them all cleaned up, they just kind of painted over it and went on about it because they didn't really tell all the younger employees or stuff how dangerous this was. So when she went and told them about it, their jaw dropped, and that's when they wanted her to start keeping record of everything that was going on and seeing how she was you know, high up in the, the union. They wanted her to, like, carry a notebook and anything she seen wrong to start documenting everything she could see. And like you
0: said, these young workers, they were hiring 18- and 19-year-olds to be in charge of uh, plutonium fuel rods. Yeah,
1: handling is very dangerous stuff. Yeah, too.
0: and how stupid is that? Mm. And the, just to keep up with production. Just greedy. Oh, absolutely. On November the 5th, 1974, Silkwood performed a routine self-check and found that her body contained almost 400 times the legal limit for plutonium contamination. That's
1: 400. 400.
0: Yeah, four with two zeros. 400. She was decontaminated at the plant and sent home with a testing kit to collect urine and feces samples for further analysis.
1: So they know it was serious.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This wasn't a a, a head cold or nothing. This was serious stuff. And although there was plutonium, on the inner portions of the gloves which she had been using, the gloves did not have any holes. Now, Dale, this suggests the contamination had come not from inside the glove box, but from some other source.
1: Right. So either somebody was contaminated before they ever grabbed the gloves, or something else was up. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like the box came that way.
0: Yeah, they just you just don't buy a box of gloves with plutonium inside of them. Right. Right? Just, you just don't do it. Now, the next morning, as she headed... To a union negotiating meeting, Silkwood again tested positive for plutonium. Although she had performed only paperwork duties that morning, she was given more extensive decontamination.
1: Yeah, and they say that those decontaminations were not easy. They would take them and Gosh, strip no. them down and scrub them and basically take the whole top layer of skin off of them. Strip them, scrub them, them with naked. with wire brushes. yeah. Yeah,
0: with uh, bleach and detergent. Right. It would actually take a layer of skin off with wire brushes mm. to decontaminate And
1: then tell you not to cry because that would make it hurt worse when the salt out of your tears hit the wound. Yeah. Good Lord.
0: Yeah, uh, it just blows them wild. So, you
1: know, this is some serious stuff. Yep.
0: And on November the 7th, as she entered the plant, she was found to be dangerously contaminated, even expelling contaminated air from her lungs. Good life. Man, so, and a health physics team accompanied her back to her home and found plutonium traces on a lot of surfaces, especially in the bathroom and the
1: refrigerator. So, what do you think about that?
0: Man, I don't know.
1: I think somebody's setting this girl up. They already know she's trying to tell them. I don't know. How do you, I don't know. I just don't understand how you get it in the bathroom and in the refrigerator and in, in your lungs and in your gloves.
0: I mean, most people spend a lot of time in the bathroom and a lot of time in the kitchen. True. So, yeah. All right. When the house was later stripped and decontaminated, some of her property had to be destroyed. Right. Which is going to come into play a little bit later. Yeah, pretty much all of it. Silkwood, her new boyfriend, Drew Stevens, and her roommate, Dusty Ellis, were sent to Los Alamos National Laboratory for in-depth testing to determine the extent of the contamination in their bodies. Mm. Now, Dale, questions arose over how Karen Silkwood became contaminated over this three-day period. She had the contamination in the bathroom that may have occurred when she spilled urine sample on the morning of November the 7th. And this was consistent with the evidence that the samples she took home had extremely high levels of contamination. And while samples taken in fresh jars at the plant at the Los Alamos plant showed much lower contamination. So basically you're saying she's higher,
1: higher at, at home than she is at, inside the plant.
0: Yeah, so she's got... Something going on. Man. She's got some radiation at home. Yeah.
1: She's got a, a, a vast amount of it.
0: And she thought she had been contaminated at the plant. And Kerr-McGee Management said that Karen had contaminated herself in order to portray the company in a negative light. Well, of course they're going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, They th- they were thinking that she was just a lunatic who pretty much smeared plutonium.
1: Everywhere, inside out.
0: Yeah, on her food and everything. You well, know, It's her, just
1: crazy. Yeah. But according to Richard L. Raske's book, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, he said that uh, security at the plant was so lax that that workers could easily smuggle out the plutonium pallets. And he also wrote that some type of plutonium found in Silkwood's body came from a production area when she had not accessed for over four months. These things were being stored in a vault, but yet were showing up on her. Yeah,
0: that smells fishy to me. Yeah. All right, Dale. Karen Silkwood said she had assembled documentation of her claims, including company papers, and she decided to go public with this evidence against Kerr McGee. And she contacted David Burnham, who was a New York Times journalist, and he was interested in her story. Of course. Absolutely. And on November the 13th, 1974, Silkwood left a union meeting at the Hub Cafe in Crescent. And another attendant of that meeting later testified that Karen Silkwood had a binder and a packet of documents with her at that cafe. Now, uh, Silkwood got into her car and headed alone for Oklahoma City, which is about 30 miles away from the Hub Cafe there in Crescent. Right. And to meet Burnham, the New York Times reporter, and Steve Wodka who was an official of her union's national office. Right. And later that evening, Silkwood's body was found in her car, which had run off the road and struck a culvert on the east side of Highway 74, State Highway 74, which was about 11 miles south of the intersection with the West Industrial Road. And the car contained none of the documents she held at the union meeting at the Hub Cafe. All right. Now, Dale, she was pronounced dead at the scene in what was believed to be an accident. The trooper at the scene remembers that he found one or two tablets of qualude in the car.
1: Right. Now, what they ain't saying is that she had been prescribed Quaaludes well before this when she was having problems sleeping over all the stress of this stuff. She was having a lot of
0: stress over all this. Yeah, these.
1: so at the time, qualude was the... I guess whatever the the go to that they prescribed. So it's not like she just found some on the street and had them in her car to so, get sleep, right? And rest. Yeah, to rest. And you know, and after a while, I'm sure tolerance builds up, so you need more to get the same effect. So she just had some with her, and not saying what. So I, I'm not buying it. She had those. It was legal the to have back then. Right. She did. She was taking those and fell asleep or whatever. What, yep. That's what they're trying to push on us, but I ain't buying it.
0: Yeah, the trooper found uh, one or two tablets of Quaalude in her car, and he remembers seeing some cannabis. Yeah,
1: she had some weed and a couple pills. So. Yeah. Right.
0: Now, the police report indicated that she fell asleep at the wheel. I ain't buying it. But the coroner found .35 milligrams of Quaalude in her blood at the time of death. Per 100 milliliters. Which is
1: almost the twice amount of recommended dosage for inducing drowsiness. But she'd been on them for a while. She built up a tolerance. I think so. You know, she can't tell me that, but I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, I don't know, man. I ain't buying it. Yeah. Because basically when she left this meeting, she was going to go meet uh, the union guy, the guy from the newspaper and her boyfriend were all in a hotel room waiting on her. Yep. And she left, and it's only 30 miles. She was only halfway there, so so we're saying 15 miles, which is basically 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So you're saying she left this meeting, went out in the car, put all her stuff in the car, and started to leave. And in 20 minutes, she fell asleep, went across traffic. On the other side, jumped a culvert and hit a cement side ditch, basically. Killed herself, and the papers magically disappeared because she fell asleep because she took too many quaaludes.
0: Yeah, that's the report. Right. That sounds... Sounds pretty fishy to me.
1: Yeah. But anyway, they said the next morning, after, they had, after the, the people waiting on her found heard news of her death, they went to where the accident was. Car had already been towed. She had already been taken to the morgue. And everything basically was cleaned up all except for one novel that she had been reading. that was covered in blood, and it was just laying there. Laying there in the grass. Right. So the next morning, they got um, permission from her family. To go to where the car was to search it and get her possessions. And when they got there, the mechanic came out and gave them a box. And when they looked through it, there was nothing that they were looking for in the box. The paperwork had already been gone. And the guy said, You guys are too late. That uh, the Kerr McGee people and the OCAW had already been there the night before to get stuff out of the car. So, and uh, one of the trooper that was on scene himself, the one that had said stuff about the Quaaludes, had said that he found paperwork outside the car with, with the Kerr McGee header on them and picked up as much as he could and put it back into the car before it was towed away. Absolutely. So it's not like it disappeared. It was there, and then it wasn't. Yep. Now,
0: Dale, some journalists have theorized it. That- Karen Silkwood's car was rammed from behind
1: by another vehicle. I think so, too. Either sideswiped or rammed one.
0: Yeah, with the intent to cause an accident that would result in her death or to just to be able to get her off the road to get those documents. I think so, yeah,
1: you because know, they said they found microscopic paint chips in the, the fresh dents on the back of her car that wasn't there before. They tried to play it off like it came from the wrecker when they pulled it out. But... I think so, too. They may not have meant to kill her, but I think they tried to run her off the road to get that box of paperwork. Somebody told at that meeting they knew what she had and where she was going, and they had to get to her before she got to that that meeting, or where to the journalist.
0: Yep. And skid marks from Karen Silkwood's car was present on the road. Right, see? Yep. Suggesting that she was trying to get back on the road after being pushed from behind. So, yeah, it looks... It looks sketchy to me. Very so, very very much so. Mm-hmm. There was never any insurance file, claim, you know, claimed on her car for an accident, you know, for having been hit from behind,
1: or for you previous to uh, explain those dents. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So, and they don't remember Karen ever saying or being involved in any kind of bump up to be able to swap paint with anything.
1: No. Everybody said those dents were not there previous.
0: Yep. And Silkwood's relatives, too, confirmed that she had taken the documents to the union meeting and placed them on the seat beside her. And according to her family, she had received several threatening phone calls very shortly to her death. Mm-hmm. See? And speculation about foul play has never been substantiated. But pretty sketchy, man. There's
1: a lot of money involved, man. Yeah, you talk,
0: you're talking billion. Money
1: and politics.
0: Yeah, because she had evidence on these These. She could shut them down. These plutonium rods that had cracks in them, and you know they well,
1: was—they said there was fifty or sixty pounds of plutonium missing, yeah. unaccounted for, just gone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Somebody's taking stuff out of there. I think it's all government. Man, yeah. I sound like a conspiracy guy, don't I? <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: I wonder if that was some of that plutonium that Doc Brown got from Back to the Future. It might have been. Yeah, <laughs> for a shiny box of uh, used pinball machine parts. <laughs> All right. Because of concerns about contamination, the Atomic Energy Commission and State Medical Examiner requested analysis of Karen Silkwood's organs by the Los Alamos Tissue Analysis Program. Much of the radioactive contamination was in her lungs, suggesting that plutonium was inhaled. Mm. When her tissues were further examined, the high deposits were found in the contents of her gastrointestinal tract suggesting that she had ingested plutonium.
1: So you think she ate it?
0: Or they... She had high levels in her house, in her kitchen, and they could have...
1: Doped her food, maybe? Yeah. Somebody?
0: Put it on her bologna.
1: Mm. Yep. Yeah, I'm not saying she didn't have it in her, but I just can't see somebody doing it to herself just to prove a point. Yeah. Especially if you knew what it was. That's serious stuff, man. Absolutely.
0: Now, Dale Kermagee... Closed its nuclear fuel plants in 1975, the Department of Energy reported the Cimarron plant as de- decontaminated and decommissioned in 1994. Twenty years later. Yep, twenty years later. Karen Silkwood's father, Bill, and her children filed a lawsuit against Kerr McGee for negligence on behalf of her estate. Right. The trial was held in 1975, and, Dale, it lasted ten months. And this was the longest trial up to that point in Oklahoma history. Mm. Jerry Spence, who was a chief attorney for the estate, the state presented evidence that the autopsy proved Silkwood was contaminated with plutonium at her death. To prove that the contamination was sustained at that plant, evidence was given by a series of witnesses who were former employees of the facility. Now, Dale, the... The defense relied on the expert witness of Dr. George Voles. He was a top scientist at Los Alamos. And Voles said that he believed the contamination in Silkwood's body was within legal standards. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the defense later proposed that Silkwood was a troublemaker who might have poisoned herself. Who would do that? No, you're buying it. Following the summation arguments, Judge Frank Thies told the jury if you find the damage to the person or property of Karen Silkwood resulted from the operation of this plant, Defendant Kerr-McGee Nuclear Corporation is liable. Yeah, it should be. Now, the jury came back with a verdict. And the verdict was for $505,000 in damages and another $10 million in punitive damages. Now, this is the kicker, Dale. On an appeal in federal court, the judgment was reduced to $5,000.
1: Yeah, whatever, man.
0: Yeah. And that was the estimate. Well, the estimated value of Karen Silkwood's losses in property at her rental
1: house. So basically, they were just going to pay for what they destroyed because it was contaminated. Pretty much. Yeah. $5,000. Which is reason really the whole reason of this lawsuit. Her her dad basically wanted her kids to have something something from her because all of her stuff was destroyed. It, everything was she gone. She had nothing. She was nothing left so, of her. That's the really the only reason he did this. Well, I mean basically to prove a point, but also to have something for her kids from their mom.
0: Yeah. All right, Dale. Although suggesting that it would appeal on other grounds, Kerr McGee settled out of court for one point three. Eight million, admitting no liability
1: right so they say we didn't do nothing but here's 1.38 million for just to for shut you up just to get you out of our hair mm.
0: yeah that sucks man i don't believe that she would contaminate herself i no, mean man. especially in parts of the plant that you know she hadn't even been in she had plutonium on her
1: right it was in the vault yeah <laughs> that type yeah you know, If you're going to contaminate yourself, maybe on your gloves or on your stuff, but you're not going to eat it, I wouldn't think.
0: I don't think so. Not on purpose. I mean, they didn't know the the dangers
1: of plutonium back then, I don't think. Not all of them anyway, but I still don't think she would. Well, the government knew they would cause cancer, and they even said that in the pamphlets that it was saying that the stuff was safe. They never even told them that there was a chance the stuff would cause cancer, even if it was 10 years down the road. They mm-hmm. like were just looking them kids in there. See, it was on the floor, and they'd just sweep it up with a broom and pick it up and throw it in the trash. And, you know, like I said before, Mm -hmm. even when they had a contamination and a breakout, they just, where they couldn't get up, they just painted over and act like it never happened. Yep. And it says
0: lawyers for Kerr McGee even hypothesized that Silkwood had intentionally taken plutonium home to contaminate herself. Ain't about it. No. And still, she became a uh, celebrity and she inspired a 1983 movie, Dale which was entitled Silkwood. Hmm. And she was played by Meryl Streep and had Cher in that movie and Kurt Russell.
1: Hmm. I have not seen this movie. I think I should watch it now.
0: Yeah. And Meryl Streep and Cher were actually nominated for Academy Awards for hmm. their roles in
1: this movie.
0: But it's pretty good pretty interesting story. Um, we don't know the full extent of it. If she was murdered or she just fell asleep but it's looking looking like somebody wanted some documents pretty bad
1: yeah i ain't buying it the fell asleep story and you know this is really the first time i dug into this i, I never saw the movie i did i remember seeing like the poster of the, the film or the the photo of the the still from the movie with sherry you know and stuff but i never saw it but i'm not buying this at all I just, somebody's crooked either and I don't know which one it's kind of they're all together or whatever I don't know if it was the company or it was the, the union guy or somebody in the government or somebody on all three or whatever somebody's paying somebody because they knew what was going on even though most of this stuff was supposedly held in secret mm-hmm. she was supposed to be doing this and turning everything she knew over to the union people and she was to even turning it over to uh, the atomic energy commission and stuff But it was all supposed to be secretive to what she found out about this, you know, because they were they sent her basically in there to do it. So but somebody found out and somebody set her up. Mm -hmm. That's what I think.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. But if anybody else thinks different or wants to weigh in on this podcast and tell us what they think happened to Karen Silkwood, let us know. We want to hear what you think and hear your opinions on it.
1: Yeah, maybe we're a mile off base. So yeah. set us straight yep absolutely that, that's what I think you have to get some good evidence Change my mind yep
0: you got any last comments or thoughts on this Dale
1: no I'm just kind of I don't know it's kind of shitty the way, way she got done she was just trying to help everybody out.
0: yeah she was just doing her job
1: doing, a, doing my job yep
0: alright Dale we want to get out
1: of here yep it's getting late let's roll
0: alright we want everyone to be safe be careful and always be aware of your surroundings
1: Because the next episode could be about you. This is the the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.